Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'd really like to be a morning person, but if you wake me, I will cut you. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I don't think Justin Trudeau and Sadiq Khan are two of the world's leading feminists. Shut up. What? Hmm? And I'm Jen Offord and last week I bought a cactus from a shop called Prick. Later on, I chat with Julia Pierpont, author of The Little Book of Feminist Saints, about the incredible women that inspired her. Mick and I talk fire safety and lots more besides with Dr Sabrina Cohen-Hatton. I'm going to be wanging on a bit about the Champions League. Football. Football. And I do Disney's Bolt. It's a thing. More of that later. But first, minor victories, protest alert, Claxon, and the fresh prints of thrown air. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we wonder why there are so few women in the photograph where two dudes publicly congratulate each other on being the world's leading feminists. Hmm. I can't let it go. Don't let it go. Never let it go. Finally, finally, one of the myriad alleged celebrity spaff rats has had justice meted out. Last Thursday, Bill Cosby was found guilty of drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constand at his Philadelphia mansion in 2004. It's a rare moment of justice in a hard uphill struggle for the many women who shared their stories in the Me Too hashtag movement, not least for the other 50-plus women who have accused Cosby of sexual assault and rape. The 80-year-old TV star is currently under house arrest before sentencing and could face up to 10 years in prison for each separate indecent assault charge, of which there were three. I mean, to be honest, he is unlikely to go to jail. Why? His defence team are planning an appeal based on the trial judge's decision to allow five other women who accused Cosby of assaulting them to testify. Home confinement until he dies seems most likely to be Cosby's punishment. I mean, I know loads of people that would bloody love not to have to leave their house. Add to that the fact that Harvey Weinstein is still just sitting pretty at a rehab retreat, and Mario Batali, Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer are all planning comebacks, and Cosby's conviction is a victory, yes, but it doesn't half feel small. Meanwhile, sorry was not the hardest word for Amber Rudd last week. In fact, it tripped off the tongue nicely by a fourth or so public apology to those impacted by the Windrush fiasco. Before it had been announced that Amber Rudd had resigned as Home Secretary, it's almost as if no one really wants to work in this government. It's almost as if it's all a bit tricky. It's almost as if anyone else wanted the job. Perhaps Theresa May would have gone a while ago. The Windrush fiasco, in case you've managed to miss this, refers to a government policy of attempting to lower numbers of immigrants living in the UK by threatening the first wave of Commonwealth immigrants with deportation, despite them having lived and worked in the UK for decades. Scores of immigrants who came to the UK as children were given indefinite leave to remain at the time, but the right to free movement between Commonwealth nations was ended by the 1971 Immigration Act. In what can only be described as an administrative clusterfuck, no one actually bothered to make a note of those given indefinite leave to remain. And those impacted, who may never have sought formal documentation, having regarded themselves as British, are now being told that they're living in the UK illegally. Yay, colonialism! As the revelations came thick and fast about PM and former Home Secretary Teabag being warned about creating a hostile environment and Rudd allegedly pissing her pants over the number of migrants she was going to send home, home and in inverted commas, that is, 
things got more than a bit awkward as the BBC aired a three-part documentary marking the 25th anniversary of the racially motivated murder of teenager Stephen Lawrence back in 1993. Of course, we're absolutely sure that the subsequent announcement of an annual Stephen Lawrence Day of Memorial was planned well in advance of aforementioned revelations, but the timing does look a little bit cynical. And you've got to wonder, even if it was planned well in advance, that's silly, isn't it? Because even if it was planned ages ago it just looks so cynical sorry i'm nodding which isn't really good good for for podcast podcast. (laughs) still it's been a busy week for trump when is it not (laughs) so much so that the announcement that he would indeed be visiting the uk wasn't even the biggest news of the week for trump july the 13th that is people Prepare yourselves, however you choose to do that. I'm stocking up on tinned goods. I'm pissing in jars. (laughs) Early last week, the world was somewhat taken by a photograph of Trump's wife, Melania, along with Barack and Michelle Obama, Bill and Hillary Clinton, George W and Laura Bush, and George Bush Sr. A photo in which they're all smiling, hugging, and generally appearing to have a lovely time, despite the fact they are at the funeral of former First Lady Barbara Bush. Yes, indeed. That is the power of Donald Trump just not being there. (laughs) Hey, I'm at my mum's funeral. Hey, you didn't come. Great. A few days later, though, on Thursday, Trump knocked that story from our memories when he called in to Fox and Friends to give a 20-minute rambling and mostly inaccurate interview the quality of which is best demonstrated by the fact that he opened it by saying it was his wife's birthday, but he'd only sent a card and some flowers because he was too busy to buy a present. Too busy to buy a present, not too busy to call in and really put questions into the public domain about your mental health <laughs> to Fox and Friends. Ooh, tell us more. Never mind. Want to hear some of the highlights of that chat? Yes, please. Okay, well, it is hard to pick a highlight when there are that many things that are so batshit crazy, but here are a few of my some of my favourite moments. Quote, When I came into office, people thought we were going into nuclear war, okay? And now they are saying, wow. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I do say wow a lot in reference to Trump. But it's more like, wow. Wow. Yeah. How about this? Quote, he does those memos and then fake news CNN, who's totally fake. You know, they give Hillary questions to the debate and nobody. Can you imagine? By the way, if you gave me the questions to a debate, which I think is actually three different sentences taking place simultaneously. No wonder he's too busy to buy presents. He's got a lot of sentences. Here's another quote. I have many, many, just so you understand, I have many attorneys. I have attorneys. Sadly, I have so many attorneys, you wouldn't believe it. How many attorneys, Donald? How many? (laughs) That sounds like something (laughs) the choir was singing back up to the lead song in Trump's impeachment the musical. We also have, quote, but I'm not involved and I'm not involved and I've been told I'm not involved. I mean, ditto to that. That actually is. That is a group of women at the back behind going, I'm not involved, I'm not involved and I've been told I'm not involved. He's actually like even less coherent than George W. Bush, isn't he? Like a lot less coherent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because here's one. And this, I think, actually might be my favourite. And I quote, if you go back to the Civil War... It was the Republicans that really did the thing, (laughs) which actually has to be my favourite because it's one of those rare occasions where he actually has a fucking point. The Republicans were the party of Lincoln. He's just too friggin' ignorant of what actually happened in the Civil War to nail that point. Stuff. 
Also, did you see he hosted the American Paralympic team? Yeah. And he said, it's tough to watch you guys. Yeah. but And sometimes he had to stop because... Because it's it tough got to watch much. you guys. It's tough to watch because he's got the attention span of a gnat. <laughs> um, one of the guys who writes Vape actually tweeted, Sue, which is the name of the secretary, saying, um, it's those athletes that are here to meet you, ma'am. And then it said, Selena, colon, are they the special ones or the normal ones? And then it said, Sue, colon, well, they look pretty normal to me, but I'll just get confirmation of that. That, that is... A, that is the, the the Veep script. Yeah. Like, just, just he can't write that anymore yeah. because it's already happened. Yeah. Satire. It is gone. Rolled on July the 13th, eh? Anyone who wasn't scared of Friday the 13th. Yeah. Surely now it's a turning point. Oh, is it a Friday? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get a little bit bleak and talk about the terrorist attack in Toronto, where a man drove a van down a packed street, murdering 10 people and injuring 14 others. Alec Manassian, the man accused of carrying out the Toronto van attack, has links to a dark online subculture known as Incel, a key player in what's known as the Manosphere. OK, so Incel stands for involuntary celibate, and the Incel theory goes like this. The Chads, attractive alpha males, are banging all the Stacies, attractive women. And there's also a subsection called Normies, which refers to couples who aren't in the top league looks-wise, well, according to these sad pricks anyway. And incels believe that genetic bad luck means that they're out of the love game, and all this shagging is going on when they aren't getting a taste, and it is making the incels very angry, violently angry, and yet apparently unable to look out the window, where a quick glance at some of the absolute car crashes having lovely sexy fun times would prove their theory bullshit. Or, you know, chat to some women and quickly discover that love and attraction aren't all about superficialities. You'll note I called Manassian's actions a terrorist attack because prior to killing 10 innocent people, mostly women, he took to Facebook to praise the, quote, incel rebellion and tip his hat to Elliot Roger, who killed five women and one man in California in 2014 to, quote, punish all females for the crime of depriving me of sex. Yeah, horrific. And quite clearly anti-women, I think you'll agree. However, terrorism isn't how Manassian's actions have been tagged by officials. Canada has rules. To count as terrorism, the attacker must have a political, religious or social motivation. Um, Canada? Hating women sure strikes me as a social motivation. It's not like some trapped wind or, I don't know, bad trousers made him furious enough to kill. I'm particularly surprised because, in my opinion, Canada is led by one of the leading feminists in the world. <laughs> you know. Let it go. Let it go. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did some research on incels. Uh-huh. Um, it's I mean, I had, heard, I had heard about it. It sounds like something written by L. Ron Hubbard. Here's it, what, what I learned. <laughs> you can go to their site, which is called incels.me which I don't think there's ever been a more appropriate domain name than that. And their origins actually come from the early days of the web, where they were actually founded by a woman. The term was coined by a woman. The incels weren't founded by a woman. No, no, no. But the term was coined by a woman. She started our website. And the idea was that she had not been sexually active until her early 20s and felt that she didn't, couldn't talk about sex with her peers because they were a lot more experienced sexually than she was so she started a group where place where people could chat now this seems to me like to be symptomatic of the entire not just internet but relationships between like the world of men and women a woman is involuntary celebrate and i think probably everyone listening has been there at some point and she assumes the problem is with her and she it makes her sad and she seeks solidarity in it 
Now, I read an interview with Elle, with the woman who actually started, like, and, and coined the term, uh-huh. actually started it. And she said what happened was women came on to the website and women were sad. And men came on and they were angry. Mm. And women blamed themselves and men blamed women. Mm. And so suddenly it just got basically taken over by men. See, men and women can agree. <laughs> yeah, I did see Hadley Freeman say that she thought describing them uh, as incels was a bad thing to do because that's the name they gave themselves and when you give the name when a group gives itself a name it suggests it has an ideology and she was arguing that the idea if the ideology is just hating women you know there's already a word for that mm. it's called misogyny yeah but why isn't that seen as a, a social motivation i don't understand I d- it's mad it's crackers isn't it mm. particularly like i say in canada <laughs> hannah stop looking at the photo <laughs> anyway to america where staff at john hopkins hospital in maryland announced last week that its doctors have performed the world's first successful penis and scrotum transplant. Was it onto Donald Trump's forehead? (laughs) No, really. (laughs) I watched a promotional video, even if I'm not entirely sure why. Well, there there was like a little animation which helped you, showed you how it was done. And to be be honest, it made the operation look slightly simpler than some flat pack furniture that I did this week. Um, If you're wondering how much demand there is for this surgery outside of Westeros... Of course, you should know that the recovering very nicely, thank you very much, recipient of the transplant had been injured by an IED in active service in Afghanistan, which doesn't bear thinking about, really. Um, I found some figures for the Defence Department, which required me doing some maths. Yikes. So it appears that around 80 US servicemen have what are described as serious penis injuries, although how many might be in need of or indeed suitable for a transplant is unclear. Why am I telling you this? Because there's a great quote in this from Dr. W.P. Andrew Lee, which is a really weird way to... I love a name that rhymes. (laughs) Chairman of the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at John Hopkins University, one of the surgeons in the case, said, while war injuries cause great suffering, disfigurement and disability, they've also provided the impetus for medical discoveries. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a bit like saying heroin causes many problems, but if it didn't exist, I'd never have seen Jared Leto get his arm cut off in Requiem for a Dream. Swings and roundabouts, isn't it? <laughs> Don't know what that was. It's a horn tooting. Is that what they sound like? What's <laughs> ding? <laughs> well times. Wow, well, Hannah's time. fanfare went off, yeah. and that is not a euphemism. No. Hear ye, hear ye, and all that shite. Last week, those their royal family members, Kate and William, were delighted to introduce a new bundle of joy to the world. Kay Middy even managed to look pretty chipper about the whole thing. She stood outside St Mary's Hospital just hours after giving birth to introduce a aforementioned bundle to the world's press and probably that guy who writes to <laughs> Your phone just won't stop introducing there is a guy. There is a guy who used to live on my old news Did report. Did he write Diana on his face? No, he's called Terry Hart. And if you Google him, you will find him being interviewed at almost any major event in which he sleeps out in the street in his union <laughs> jack outfit. He is about 80-odd. Uh, Alice Hutton, who was here on our podcast when we were talking about local newspapers, um, tweeted immediately about Terry Hart when she knew there was a royal baby. Where is Terry? Who's interviewing him? Bless Terry. So what did they call that newly spawned fifth in line to our motherfucking British throne born on goddamn St George's Day? Huh? As is customary, we expected him to be named after a well-known monarch. Though one imagined Paul Dacre burning every croissant in London as it transpired that monarch was. French? 
welcome Prince Louis of Cambridge. Does anyone want some good news? I mean, yeah. if baby Louis wasn't good enough, eh? No? Yeah. I, I, I yeah. have no feelings whatsoever what? on a new royal baby. I, I do... I, one thing I did see that's got to be worth mentioning is that um, I didn't actually hear it, but I did see lots of reports that John Humphreys described Kate Middleton as being the sort of thing that other mothers should be jealous of, that she looked that, that great. The she morning. looked fucking knackered, and I felt After so pregnancy. sorry for her. I thought that has just got to be the last thing you'd want to be doing. Yeah, because she's just, we, we, we learned this the other day. She'll be wearing a nappy. Yeah. You don't want to be standing there. No, with like literally the yeah. world, knowing that like, multiple helicopters have just been like well you know whilst you've been squeezing something out of your vag multiple yeah. helicopters have been like bearing down on whilst squeezing something out of your vag having your having a blow dry well yeah hair looked lovely didn't it it did look lovely but it shouldn't be something that new mothers or any woman at all is no. told to aim for no I thought it was I, I can't fucking believe they make her do that but shit but if we can get honest. John Humphreys to squeeze another human out of the end of his cock and then be stood outside greeting the press. I think we should do it. All right, well, good news. Uh, another historical addition this week came by way of Parliament Square's first ever statue of a bird. First ever in 2018. Because that's what progress looks like, guys. The bird in question is suffragist Millicent Fawcett, who you'll know all about because you'll no doubt have listened to our International Women's Day special. The statue was created by artist Gillian Waring and unveiled by PMT Bag last Thursday, who said, I would not be standing here today as Prime Minister were it not for Dame Millicent Garrett Fawcett. Yeah, cheers, Millicent. (laughs) Props to campaigner Caroline Criado-Perez, who started the campaign for the statue on her mobile phone after a run. The free-thinking digital radical. It's good that she got all the credit, though, right? Oh, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. She didn't, did she? she? Well, no, there was, was, again, I saw on Twitter, uh, a a press release went out from the mayor's office about it, and it didn't contain her name. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we swipe left on sexism and try and find something that suits us better. We're not going to find it on Tinder, are we, Jen? No, we're not. But what we are going to find on Tinder is, uh, struck me as very odd place to advertise this, an advert by... Now, how the fuck do we say this? Kuno Medical? Is there a question mark at the end of their title? No, it's <laughs> spelt Q-U-N-O medical. Q-no medical? Q-no medical. Uh, I think it's pronounced quinoa, darling. <laughs> quinoa medical. Um, hyperbole? Hyperbole medical. <laughs> Don't know. But anyway, it is a an advert for a mummy makeover. Get your body back. And uh, you've got a, there's a bunch of things you, you can choose for if you're looking for a breast lift, a tummy tuck, a butt lift. I don't, I don't really understand that because your bum should probably be... I always find standing up. Unaffected. <laughs> or you can have a bit of a combo, a breast and tummy or a breast and Ooh, tummy like, and like butt. <laughs> or a breast, body bucket, please. <laughs> a breast and tummy and liposuction. Wow. So there's plenty. It's plenty good to, to see that from. John Humphreys is branching out from reported <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with Quinoa Medical. <laughs> yeah. 
Hello, Mickey here. I was lucky enough to get author Julia Pierpont on the phone from New York, I know, and we chatted about her new book, The Little Book of Feminist Saints. It is a really cool book with a plethora of excellent women that Julia has sort of written a, a cool little story about on each page. And I started off by asking her why she decided she needed to write the book. I thought it would be really lovely to have a book, a beautiful object that gives you sort of insight into women, some of whom you've heard of already, but hopefully things about them that you didn't know, and then introduce you to new women as well. And I certainly myself learned about a number of remarkable women I'd never heard of before. It is an absolutely stunning book. There are a hundred what you class as matron saints, which I absolutely mm-hmm. love, beautifully illustrated by Manjeet Thap. And they're quite short sort of biographies of them but very chatty biographies to introduce you to them how much research did you have to do a good bit you know I I had to do the research first of all to familiarize myself at the level that would make for a boring biography you know (laughs) and then yeah and then I had to just keep reading I tried to find primary sources unusual sources in one case I I ended up quoting a, a comment that I found on a YouTube video. You know, it's a very strange way of looking for things and just finding that whatever the thing was that excited me that, you know, at the end of the day, when you're having drinks with friends, you say, oh, I learned this interesting thing today about this person. Not, you know, the thing that makes them come alive for you. Kind of the way that I, I before this, I wrote a novel and I consider myself primarily a fiction writer. And it's kind of in the way that you find details for characters in fiction, you know, the thing that makes them feel whole. It's a real mix of amazing women as well. We've got Frida Kahlo, Oprah Winfrey, Madonna, Mae West. Mm. And one of the ones that was very interesting to me, the matron saint of journalists. Let me find Oh, Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly. And actually her feast day is May the 5th. You've given them all feast days, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. But I'd never heard of Nellie Bly before. What an amazing life. She is amazing. And she was mostly known, I mean, for who people who did know her, I knew virtually nothing about her, for um, traveling around the world the way that Jules Verne did, um, you know. But before that, I mean, the part that I, the thing that I focus on in the book was this undercover operation sort of that she did, where she actually got herself committed to an, an, a mental institution and, you know, this was around the time that this is sort of turn of the century, late 1800s. And it was just um, really poor circumstances for people in those institutions. And she wrote an expose and really changed a lot of the practices that happened in those places. And just a, a remarkably brave thing to do to to get yourself committed. Yeah. It was inc- was how that. did she get out again? Um, she she informed some people at her newspaper where she was going to be. So she knew that they would reach out and get, and grab her. Because it sounds um, and, and horrific. I know, I know. It sounds like the kind of thing you might end up regretting. But yeah, luckily, she, she some people on the outside knew she was there. I don't think I would be brave enough to put myself through that, even in the name of journalism. So absolute amazing. tip of the hat to Nellie Bly. Did you go in expecting some to be your favourites and have that flipped around? You know, a, a little bit. I mean, I still love the people that I went in loving, you know. But then I found often women that complimented them. One example, um, Catherine Hepburn is in the book, and I grew up watching those you know, old movies, and I love her. But another woman that turned up in the book is Dorothy Arzner, um, who is a Hollywood director whose films I'd never seen before. 
and I'd never heard her name before, but she was the first woman to be accepted into the Directors Guild of America. And she was one of the women or one of the directors responsible for discovering Catherine Hepburn. She also came up with the, uh, she basically invented the boom mic, you know, the mic that, yeah, by, you know, using like a broomstick or something like she, (laughs) she, um, she's very, she's very interesting. And she kind of in the way of Catherine Hepburn wore pants and wore things that weren't, you know, she was a very masculine style, which was very uncommon at the time. And so the, almost like finding the women behind other women as well. Um, was exciting. Two that stood out to me were, were already very well-known names, but Madonna and Mae West seem to complement each other as well. Yes, don't they? I know. Another woman who I grew up watching some of her old movies, if that's odd or not, I don't know, Mae West is so wonderful. And um, yeah, and, and Madonna, is, uh, the way that she sort of owns sex in this era is very com like a lot in common with Mae West there I definitely consider them really simpatico I love the fact that I, I didn't know this at all but Mae West is very rare in that she didn't her characters didn't tend to get married or have the get the bloke at the end and that be her end of story it yeah was, that you was know. not the victory for her I don't think that's how she lived her life either but it was very rare to represent it that way little known fact I think, is that um, Mae West gave Cary Grant his first film role. Oh, well, that was good of her. <laughs> and she saw him walking around the studio and thought, yeah, he has something. He can be my my, uh, my love interest in this movie. <laughs> good on her. How hard was it to take such big lives and condense it to something that would fit on a page? Uh, you know, it, it's um, challenging, certainly, and you want to do them justice, but... Um, the fact that they're not complete biographies, they're snippets makes, made it sort of feel like I could, I couldn't possibly do justice to their whole lives on a page, you know? So finding these just little elements, but that, that in itself was a challenge, but I always felt like I knew when I'd found it, you know, and it was, it became, uh, in the beginning, it felt like I didn't know what I was doing. And by the end I had a, a sort of a rhythm down of, this is how I do this project. And I know when I found the right passage or subject matter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, also, you know, there are several living people in the book and we sent the copies out to all of them. And that's very, very nerve wracking to write um, a note addressed to Oprah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just Oprah and saying like, I hope you don't hate it. <laughs> um, Did you get you any know. feedback? Um, we heard back from a few people. Um, yeah, Cecile Richards is is one of the women that we heard back from. That was really exciting because uh, she and her um, mother, Ann Richards, appear in the book together. Ann Richards was an amazing politician in Texas and voice for women. And Cecile Richards has been running Planned Parenthood for ages. And they're just an amazing mother-daughter duo. And she, she wrote back, and that was lovely to hear. Yeah, a, a, a number of women. Um Still waiting on Oprah. (laughs) Come on, Oprah, pull your finger out. (laughs) It feels a book that is very much for our times. I love the idea that you can dip in and out of it. And I also love the idea that obviously there might be a few things you might censor, but you could read this to kids. You could let little girls know that there are some amazing women out there to look up to. I like the idea that it's for many ages. I I mean, Mm -hmm. there are some, you know, there are some difficult parts for that would be you know difficult for children to handle although that's just because many of these women if not most of these women led very difficult lives yeah. um you know so it's hard to omit something like that but 
Yeah, little girls and also little boys, I hope. Yes. Yes, you're right. I apologize. Absolutely. Children, children in general. <laughs> when you were writing it, did you have any age group in mind or was it just trying to do justice to these women? Yeah, I really didn't think write it for an age. I feel like that might have limited it. But I, I even if I hope that young people read this book or people get this for the young people in their lives, I wanted it to be a book that would be powerful and interesting for adults as well you know for my friends and it's not geared towards any one age at all it's supposed to be sort of for everybody it's absolutely beautiful and it's a great read I've loved just being able to pick it up and sort of read it for a few minutes put it down because there's actually quite a lot to take in on each page because it's about a whole life yeah and you know if you if you read about somebody that you hadn't heard of before and you respond to them then you can go learn more about them or get in some cases they have books or you can look at their artwork um yeah i like the idea of it opening you up to new people as well obviously it is very reflective of the time that the, the fact that there are women and feminists who have been around and fighting for our rights for such a long time how does it feel in america right now Honestly, I mean, it feels good in a way. I mean, things feel like they're headed in in a good direction. I don't know. I worry because I think every time there's progress, there's it's two steps forward, one step back. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there's always going to be sort of a backlash to people wanting change. But I mean, it's been an exciting year. I mean, it's been an exciting year in a lot of ways. You know, we just had the March for Our Lives as well here that, you know, for um, gun control. And I, that was amazing. I don't know if it's the way that social media is now, or maybe it's the president that we have, but people are in from the Me Too, Me Too movement to March for Our Lives. It just feels like everyone is really all hands on deck in a way that we need. Mm -hmm. It um, feels like communities are becoming powerful again. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, it's a great feeling. You realize to, you almost have to remind each other in these sort of times that people agree that you agree with each other that you have each other's backs and that adding sort of faces to uh otherwise impersonal infrastructures and i don't know i um i'm very hopeful good i think that's all we can be at the moment hopeful yeah. and out there doing stuff yeah i'm gonna be really mean and ask you to pick a favorite oh i can't pick a favorite <laughs> how could i i i don't know i the one person i think about a lot is uh, Ruby Bridges. She was um, the first woman, the girl, she was only six years old, after the passing of Brown versus the Board of Education in America in 1960 to, um, to go into a school as, you know, the first black child to go into a previously all-white school in New Orleans. Wow. And the photos I, that I looked at from that day are just horrific. See, people protesting outside um because they don't want this child a six-year-old this adorable six-year-old in class with their white children and then not to bring everything back to oprah but years and years later when when ruby bridges was an adult she was reunited with the one really good teacher who looked out for her at that school who taught her directly ended up being you know in a classroom alone with her because no one else would go in she was reunited with that teacher on Oprah Winfrey's show years later. So everything, all these women are connected and um, it's really not, it's really lovely. I uh, bet you could have written about 200 women. It kept going. Oh yeah. When we were putting the list together, I think we ended up, you know, we crowdsourced as well. We got, and I think we had 400 on the list wow. easily. And then you just have to winnow it down. Or, or write a sequel. <laughs> or write a sequel. Yeah. I think, I think we have enough for sure. 
Hi, we're here in the unexpectedly noisy Big Chill in King's Cross with Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, who's a firefighter, a psychologist, and an expert on risk-critical decision-making. Hello. Hello. What? Maybe we'll start with, what's risk-critical decision-making? Wow, so there's an interesting story that sits behind this, actually. I'm really interested with how the brain processes information and how you make decisions when you're at a point where you're under an incredible amount of pressure and the potential outcomes have got high stakes. So if you take the world of fire and rescue, for example, which is where most of my research area is focused, our context is really challenging. So when we go to incidents, we know they're high stakes because of the nature, the inherent dangers of the the, the kind of circumstances we're going into. It's dangerous to the people that you're there to rescue, obviously. It's dangerous for the firefighters that are going into these kind of environments to perform the rescues. So there are lives at stake. It is a high-stakes decision. Um, Also, the kind of environments that we go into now, we're under more scrutiny today than ever before as incident commanders. So you know that before you've even finished the incident, someone will have whipped out their iPhone and it will probably be on YouTube before you've got back on the truck and got back to the station. So in many respects, that's really good because, you know, it, it, it enhances your levels of accountability. But in other respects, it adds to the pressure that you're feeling over and above the kind of circumstances that you're dealing with. Also, because the number of fires and incidents that we've gone to has reduced over the past 10 years because we've done so much work around our prevention activity arguably that means we're getting less experience now less practice at those kind of risk critical skills that you'd need to operate in that kind of environment I did some work looking at command skills essentially a piece of national work that fed into our national policy on on effectively how we command incidents and there are some like really really important skills that you don't necessarily think about when you imagine a firefighter or an incident commander I should say sorry the incident commander would be the one that's in charge of the whole incident so they'd be the ones that would be coordinating making the decisions and making sure that the right people are in the right place at the right time to go and save that life so that person's carrying a lot of responsibility and and a lot of accountability for the way the whole incident progresses if you imagine the kind of skills that you'd need for that you're talking about decision making it's a skill it's a cognitive skill situational awareness the way that you integrate all those pieces of information and you process them into that mental picture so you understand what's going on around you communication leadership your resilience to pressure they're all skills they're non-technical skills but they're skills nonetheless because we're not going to as many incidents we've got to work harder to make sure that those skills are still as as flexible if you like as we need them so the analogy that I always take it to is if you imagine swimming swimming's a skill right If you trained every day in an Olympic pool and you could swim twice the distance of the channel, but then you picked yourself up and you plopped yourself in the channel and you found you couldn't even do a quarter of it, it's the same skill, but because the environment is different, the pressures are different, which is why it's so important to get this right. So my research area has looked at the way that we make decisions under those kind of very specific circumstances and under those pressures with a view to trying to make firefighters safer. I mean, I suppose in the way that any of us could be mugged in the street and then be absolutely confident in our own selves, we would not chase that person who mugged us, but yet we might still, in the heat of the moment, mm. make that decision. Yeah. To, 
is that the same sort of primary <laughs> reaction that you, you, you're kind of trying to combat? Do you know what? You basically nailed it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, going to be at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well done, Hannah. Uh, and all of this work has led to a book. Am I right? It has, yeah. What's it's all very from? exciting. It's called Through the Fire. And one of the things that I really wanted to try to do was to show people the human side of firefighting. Everyone's got a really strong kind of stereotype, an image in their head of, of what, what a firefighter might look like. Exactly like you, no. No, no. Exactly no. Like well, I would say post-September the 11th, very much as somebody who is almost beyond human in their levels of endurance and bravery and exactly exactly it's the superhuman kind of image and and we're so lucky in this country we dial 999 and we get a response you know not everywhere in the world is as lucky as we are from that respect and I think that sometimes we forget what sits behind that response the human response behind that and you don't have to be you know a kind of stereotypical calendar looking hunky person to become a, a firefighter said they're not all six foot two hairy ass men anymore <laughs> and she's quite right she's quite right and neither do you need to be because you know what it's about the mix of skills yeah and you know no one would want a toolbox full of 10 mil spanners that'd be pretty useless so, you know, <laughs> i think i've gone out with it <laughs> you know it's, it is about that mix and Regardless of what we look like, the one thing that all firefighters have got in common is that drive to protect people. You know, I'm really fortunate with the work that I've been able to do. I've been able to help to protect the people that protect you so that essentially they have more chance of coming out and, and saving a life. And that is, has been such a huge privilege. Um, so with the book, I wanted to try and get across the human side of it and also the human cost of it as well and what it means to firefighters when we're operating in those kind of risk-critical environments. So I've taken the research that we've done and the pieces that we've learned about how we make decisions. I've highlighted, um, I've kind of used my own personal experiences as an operational incident commander um, to be able to kind of demonstrate those things in practice and they're just as applicable to everyday life as well the way that we make decisions and some of the techniques that we've developed to help firefighters are just as applicable if you're making a decision in a boardroom or you know you're trying to satisfy your grumpiest relative with your you know your decisions on where you go on holiday you know it, it they're really useful tools it's not just a book coming, is there? There's also End of All of Picked Up for a TV series. Yes, they have. They have. Sorry, <laughs> I don't know why my voice goes really high-pitched <laughs> no, with excitement whenever I talk really about that. <clears throat> yes, no, it's wonderful. It's incredibly exciting. So a production company called Kudos have uh, acquired the rights to the book and they have done some incredible stuff before. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, Spooks and Grandchester and Broadchurch, but that's all yeah. their work. And um, Gunpowder that was on on Bonfire Night, which really inappropriately yes. is my favourite holiday of the year. It's just I love Bonfire Night. I'm so excited to see what they produce at the end of it. It's just wonderful. But one of the most exciting things for me is to be able to kind of challenge those stereotypes that people have about what you need to be a good firefighter. Well, let's challenge one of them now and say that things appear to be changing for women in the fire service. I mean, you in your position, 
Danny Cotton, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, they're, they're also the sorry. Well, she's the now commissioner for London Fire Brigade. She is yeah, in our 150 is. year um, history. Yeah, and also the Fire Brigade Union has some women. In, in, in yes, it. yes, yes. No, lots. Is it becoming a more female-friendly working environment, or is there still a long way to go? Do you know what? I joined the fire service when I was 18 years old. 17 years ago, which obviously means I'm 21 today. Um, And it's so incredibly different today to the position that we were in 17 years ago. And when I joined, I joined in South Wales Fire and Rescue Service, and I was the seventh woman to join out of 1,700 male operational firefighters. So, you know, we were absolutely in the minority. And I've had some really challenging experiences, but I think, you know, that's the equivalent to everyone's workplace. But I've also had some of the most amazing experiences as well. The watch that I used to work on in Cardiff, I can honestly say it was like having 16 big brothers that you would go to work with every day. They were just wonderful. So I think the demographics are certainly changing. You know, we've seen, um, we have seen a small increase in the number of women that are joining the fire and rescue services nationally. I think nationally, oh my gosh, I'm going to say the wrong one now, but I, I'm, we're around 5 or 6% nationally. Still not enough. It's still not enough. And it's, I don't say that because I think that we need a 50-50 split at all. I don't say that for that reason at all. I think that we need to attract the best of the best to be firefighters. You know, it's such an incredible job. It's so worthwhile. And at the moment, we're only attracting the best of the best of the people who are attracted to the traditional stereotype. You know, I think some of our best firefighters have probably never even considered it as a job yet. And that, for me, is the the, the challenge. So, you know, any way that we can contribute to changing that stereotype. And, I, you know, I think Danny's done an incredible job, absolutely incredible job of, of challenging some of those stereotypes and role modelling um uh, you know, a, a different image. I think it's been wonderful. So, still lots more to do, but I think that we're on a journey, and we will get there. And you know, I can't wait to see what it's going to be like in another seventeen years' time. You touched on there about about having been in some horrific situations. What does the effects of being in a major event like September the 11th, Wembley Tower, which obviously we, we can't talk about in detail? because of the ongoing inquiry or um, King's Cross we're just up the road from King's Cross which was uh, my uncle was at the King's Cross fire really? as a fireman yeah in 1985 I can't say it's actually something I did ask him about it but I was young when I asked him about it I think I asked it about him about it from a factual point of view yeah. rather than from a feelings point of view as in a, what did that do to you what yeah. do you, do you now it seems like the sort of thing you don't want to bring up after a long time. No. But what, what sort of effects, or do we do we know how that affects people? Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting because it's not just firefighters, it's not just emergency responders. There has been some research done into how we respond to traumatic events, and there, the, the research shows that one in every two of us will be exposed to some kind of traumatic event within our, lives, our lifetime, so it's a very relevant point. Out of those people, around 10% will go on to develop something more serious like post-traumatic stress disorder. Actually, MIND uh, did some fantastic research as part of their um, uh, Blue Light Mental Health campaign, and they looked at how people in emergency 
services respond. And they actually found that we suffer disproportionately from the effects of trauma because we're exposed to it so regularly. They also found it was more difficult for people from blue light services to talk about it or admit that they have a, you know, that they need some help. So certainly breaking down that stigma around mental health has been an ongoing challenge. And, and like I said, I think mine are doing some fantastic work with it. Fire and rescue services up and down the country have really grabbed hold of it and are starting to do some fantastic work with it as well. So bit by bit, we're breaking down the stigma associated with it. But yeah, we do get exposed to traumatic situations and it, it does play on our mind. And this is something that I touch on in my book, actually. I've had experiences myself where, you know, for every kind of hundred scenes you go to when you can be exposed to some really difficult scenes, there'll always be that one that sticks with you that you find difficult. And Sometimes it's because there's something around it that's closer to home. And I'll give you an example. One of the, the, the incidents that I had many, many years ago was... It was actually one of the drivers for the research. Um, me and my husband, who's now my husband, he wasn't at the time, we were both firefighters at the same time and we were on neighbouring stations. So we didn't work together directly on the same crew, but, you know, we'd kind of be in and around the same area. There was an incident one day where a firefighter had been very badly burned and I knew at this incident there was only one fire engine and my husband was on it and I was part of the crew that was responding to that um, and when the, the when we had the ticket through and the guys kind of looked at me and, and I walked in and they, there was just like this look of horror on their face I was like what's the matter and I was kind of like pulling on my boots and pulling the straps up over my shoulders and they told me what it was and it was like the whole room was spinning um, and I could hear their voices, but I couldn't make out the words of what they were saying. And that journey was the longest four minutes and 37 seconds of my entire life, let alone my career. It was hideous. And when we got there and I jumped off the truck, there was kind of this huddle of, of firefighters. And all I could see was this pair of legs with kind of dirty patches on the knees sticking out from the huddle. And I had no idea whether it was Mike or not. And I can honestly say, I think I was about to throw up when Mike stood up from the huddle and I could see that he was all right. And I can remember just feeling this overwhelming sense of relief that it wasn't him. And I was running towards the, the crowd and I had like a, a medic kit in my one hand and an oxygen cylinder in my other. And I couldn't feel my legs. I knew they were moving, but I couldn't feel them at all. You know, I was so overcome with this, this, this sense of relief that it wasn't him. And anyway, I got to the huddle and I did what a firefighter is supposed to do. I joined my crew and we dealt with the scene. But for a long time after that, I felt this incredible sense of guilt because for the entire journey, I'd crossed my fingers that it wasn't Mike. And by crossing my fingers that it wasn't him, I'd almost felt like I'd wished it on somebody else who we'd worked with for a long time. And he wasn't just a colleague, he was a friend. And I, and I, I found that really difficult to deal with. But, you know, afterwards, I'd be kind of... Uh, I didn't admit how I felt for a very long time. In fact, it was probably years later before I actually was comfortable enough to speak about it. And part of me was afraid that people would think that I was, you know, weak or couldn't cope. Another part of me thought that, you know, cynical people might think that my weakness was predisposed because I was a woman. So I doubly didn't want to raise it. I'd spent all my career trying not to tick the box that says, said I was different. And, you know, you don't want to provide another reason for people to see a difference. So... You know, it was really hard, but the only way that I could deal with it was by doing something good with it. Yeah. 
and that was the whole reason why I started to look at psychology and I actually, I left school at 16, left home at 15 so by the time I started looking at kind of firefighter safety and how we could make a difference I didn't have the qualifications to make any kind of a meaningful difference at first so that's when I did a psychology degree, distance learning with the OU and then I found actually this is really really my passion and I could do something useful with this and then I went on and did a, a PhD at Cardiff while I was still serving and wow. did something useful with it what and made a difference with it. What the fuck have I been doing it. with my time? <laughs> <laughs> really? not chest of drawers, mate. <laughs> That's what I was doing. Thank you so much for joining us, Sabrina. It's, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Hi, we're joined in the studio today by our film reviewer extraordinaire, Yosra Osman. Hello, Yosra. Hello. We're here to talk about films that, at the start of the year, were all Oscar fodder. Well, certainly the big films of the year are all now about to launch on DVD, so you can watch them at home for cheap per. Uh, so, um, Yosra's come to talk about <laughs> talk about those with us. Yes, yes, I am. Um, should we should we start with three billboards? Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Released Dubai on DVD on the 21st of May. Okay. We've all seen this one. Has everyone seen it? Yeah. yeah. I think I'm going to be in the minority for this. Did you not Ooh. like it? I am not a fan. I'm just looking at all your faces now. You all look horrified. You're not the first person that said that to Same. Me. Yeah, did you all love it? I yeah. Did. I did love it. So I'll start with what I did like about it. And I thought Francis McDormand, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, all of them, they were brilliant. They were, the performances are the best thing about it. I just wasn't crazy about how it was written. I thought it had a bunch of plot holes. I found some of its treatments of certain themes a bit annoying. Um, It didn't really seem very coherent to me. So I found myself getting quite impatient with it throughout the film and was not, not really crazy about it, I'm afraid. Can I ask you, some of the criticism I saw of it was in that it appeared to redeem a racist character too easily is that something you thought sam rockwell's character he's a funny one first of all they keep saying he's racist but he's never actually racist in the film like it's all just kind of there in the background for just to give his character some kind of nastiness that we didn't really need that because you see him like can I say that he throws someone out of a window? Yeah. Well, I have anyway. Um, he's just a pretty horrible guy regardless. And I, I I, didn't really see his arc in the film as being at all redemptive. I, I found it, it was, maybe it was trying to be that way, but that didn't really work for me because the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking, yeah, he's just nasty. Like, I know at the end he's trying to do something good. I, I wasn't really feeling it. I wasn't really feeling how many of the characters were written, apart from Frances McDormand's, to be honest. And it did have two of the worst secondary female characters I've ever seen. Well, not ever. That's an exaggeration. New girlfriend of the ex of uh, Frances McDormand's ex, and the girl that worked in the place with the ginger guy. What, what, was, that? what was that? What did he work as? Like in the advertising. Yeah, advertising office. sales. I did wonder whether. That that was enough to run a business. I felt like there had to be some other <laughs> point to that business, other than him just renting out those billboards. Having and... read the criticism around it, I I loved it when I watched it. I thought it was great. I came out thinking it was a great film. I loved In Bruges. I loved Seven Psychopaths, and I thought it was of that sort of similar humour and dark and beautifully written characters. But when I read the criticism, I have gone back and gone, oh yeah, why didn't? 
the why didn't Lester Freeman <laughs> from the Wire investigate? What, that was just left. They don't yeah. seem to investigate who set that fire. There are certain scenes in it that I just think are knockouts, and that kind of carries the rest of it along. I dis- I disagree in that I thought that, girlfriend. that John Holmes' oh, yeah. girlfriend was the funniest thing in yeah, it. Yeah, she was oh, brilliant. No. I thought she was just genuinely really <laughs> funny. But to me, the best scene in it is the scene with Nick Searcy as the priest when he turns up yes. and she just lays into him and her son doesn't say a single word. Mm. I can't remember the name of the actor, apologies, because he's in that and he's in Manchester by the Sea. He's really good in both of them. And his face just changes from... He's a bit embarrassed and he feels a bit awkward. And then he's really amused by that whole Crips and Bloods chat. And then at the end, he's just full on, go on, mum. <laughs> I think their relationship actually is one of my favourite things, isn't it? The mother and son relationship. Because it isn't overdone and it isn't saccharine and she lets him be a grown-up. Mm. But there's obviously underlying issues that sort of get dealt with by them just being themselves. OK, should we move on to The Greatest Showman out on... DVD on the 14th of May. Oh, my mum's going to be well excited. She's seen it three times. Three times? Amazing. I really liked The Greatest Showman. It and is I, Marmite, isn't it? It is one of those things. I watched it fully accepting everything that was wrong with it, but also just, I just love a good musical and I love Hugh Jackman. He's brilliant. He's and... got a massive Ackman. Sorry. <laughs> 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 and I just thought the songs were quite good and I, I you know I've, I've just got a little bit swept up in it and I know that there are a lot of people that didn't really like it and it is a bit silly and it's fucking ridiculous uh, yeah, but it, it is, is glorious exactly. I haven't seen it so what's it about please someone it's about P.T. Barnum yeah. it is a very sanitised view of P.T. <laughs> Barnum's <laughs> life that completely washes over any questions of, you know, animal cruelty, you know. It was a different time, Hannah. Well, also how he treated, how people who are treated, who are different get treated. And then also then presents itself as if that that, that is celebrating people who are different. Yeah. When, in fact... It, it was exploiting them. It, it, it was. was exploiting people who were different. Um, the, I saw it with my mum and my nephew, and the minute it started, I went, oh, Fuck, it's a musical. Are you not a musical fan? I'm not a big musical uh, fan. See. And yet, at the end, I was like, oh, my God. That was true. I loved it. Yeah. And I think, what's her name? Carola Hughes, is it? Oh, is she the bearded lady in it? She's the bearded lady. Mm. I think she was proper robbed at the Oscars. I think that should have won. I thought voice. she was. Fantastic voice. I am obsessed with the circus and I'm in a circus. I do static trapeze. And I actually went with my mum on my birthday the other week and she said, oh, I really hope you like it. And I was like, it's about a circus. And she was like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot that you did that. And um, I hadn't been for a year and a half and it inspired me to go back last Thursday. Oh, nice. And I'm covered in bruises, but giddy as fuck. So, you know, it was a win. And it, it just... I think you said it swept you along. Yeah. But it does. It just probably properly picks you up. It's a feel-good film. It is. Even when he's being a bit of a dick, you're kind of rooting for him and you're rooting for his ragtag bunch of freaks, which mm. is what they are. <laughs> it's, it's really good fun. And I think, you know, I mean, I am a musical fan, so I knew I was going to like it. And I also love the circus. So for me, it already had those two boxes ticked. And then by the end of it, I just wanted to sing along with them all. I wanted to, like, go and join the circus and have a good sing-song. Join the circus, come along. It did make me think one question, though, but he rides an elephant into town to go to a fairly posh event. One, how big are elephants in real life? Because that elephant looks massive. Like, I mean, I know they're big, but, like, ridiculously big. Like, it was closer to the screen than everything else. And also, where, where do you park an elephant? Did he just abandon the elephant? 
It does have one of the strangest romantic scenes ever in it, and I think it's kind of the summary of of what this film <gasps> is, really. I love it, though. It is it's utterly preposterous when they're both flying around on the road, <laughs> Zac Efron and um, Zendaya. Zendaya. Um, and it is completely ridiculous. It defies all laws of physics. And it's weirdly rough. It's like they keep smashing into each other. That's and, the circus. That's part of the charm, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't really know who he is apart from this. Of course you don't. Musical. musical. High school musical. Which I've never seen, I'd never like seen. to add. Well, I mean, 17 again is fucking great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely watch that. Then he's been in a bunch of other things. Like, he, he's in that shitty Baywatch remake, wasn't he, recently? Jen's film taste coming to the fore. Yeah. <laughs> 17 again is... Solid. Anyway. <laughs> okay, the last one that we actually have a firm release date for here is All the Money in the World, which is the 21st of May. Oh, yeah. And now none of us have actually seen this. Um, and the otter's face makes me not <laughs> want to see it. Yeah, it's fine. It, it, um, That's Michelle Williams as well, right? It is. Because she's in Great yeah, Showman. Yeah. yeah, she's in that. She's pretty good in that. And um, Christopher Plummer, obviously, is 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 pretty good in it as well. I have to say, that's what interests me the most mm, about it, mm. the swapping in of Christopher Plummer. Mm. I call him now not Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was hard to watch it and not think about all that kind of... All, all that backstory while I was watching it. But Chris Plummer does a very good job. <sighs> What's his face? Mark Wahlberg. He's really drippy in it and really quite bland. He was probably the one part where I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> just get that paycheck, go you. But <laughs> it's, it's a good piece of drama. Like for, for a night out at the cinema or a night in watching it on a DVD, I think it's fine, but it, it, it's not really anything. <laughs> Moving on was Lady Bird, which we don't have a firm DVD release release date for but I'm pretty sure given that everything else is being released around this time there will be one soon I have seen Lady Bird and I have to say I was largely ambivalent about it given the amazing reviews that it's had so I can see from your face Yosra that you're pouting for the podcast yeah that comes across very well yeah it's easy for a film like Lady Bird to be incredibly pretentious and I was expecting to sit in it and just be like this is annoyingly pretentious but it wasn't at all I thought it was like just really nice and subtle and told a great story and it like reminded me of when I was Shersha Ronan's character age and the relationship with her mother it was just I loved it you 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 don't I thought it was all right but given that it was, I mean, it was nominated for Oscars and people mm, were mm. were really ravenously sort of mm-hmm. interested. I don't know. I, I mean, you're right. It wasn't full on Juno, as in I do, my, my brain does kind don't of rebel. Don't knock Juno, don't knock Juno. When you hear people, people talking in a way that you think that's, that's how you would like to think that you spoke when mm. you were 17 as opposed to how you actually did. A bit like Dawson's Creek, eh? Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm the also, end of I the fucking say, world. I was... Ambivalent is probably the best word. Do you need a bit more fierce in your mother-daughter relationships? Well, yeah, because I I think it's unfair to compare two films, but I thought that I, Tonya, completely blew Lady Bird away. I thought I, Tonya, was fantastic. It's such a good film. I watched it literally this morning on a flight back from New York, and I concur. It's really, really good. How funny. I was ambivalent towards I, Tonya. Really? I was, oh, I yeah. I, 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 this is so funny. I'm disagreeing with you on everything. That's, right. That's, <laughs> what, we, that's what we're bringing in for. Yeah, um, this time anyway. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I was extremely grumpy when I went to see I, because I'd only had a couple of hours sleep and I was just in a bad mood. So that might have affected how I took the film. Rough night on the ice rink? Uh, <laughs> something like that, yeah. 
But I, I, I did think Margot Robbie and Alison Janney were really, really good. I'll, I'll give them that. But I just, I don't know. I just wasn't really that taken with it. I just can't believe it's an actual real story. I did go and read up afterwards on the on the actual. Yeah, you're story. too young to have like remembered it, right? I didn't really know anything. I didn't. I didn't know anything about the real story before I saw the well, film. Apparently, Margot Robbie didn't realize no. it was a true story when mm. it was first pitched to her. She said to him that when she first right, okay. read it, she was that like, "It's not real, though." And my gut reaction to it was that I didn't want to watch it because I didn't necessarily agree with the humanisation of someone who had been involved in something quite horrible. And mm. having watched it, and bearing in mind that is based on certain versions of events, mm. and I'm sure that Nancy Kerrigan has other versions of events mm. that she would say, I actually came away with a lot of sympathy for her, and I think it made a really good job of not just the domestic violence, because how you can handle a film and have domestic violence and it still be funny at the same time is quite interesting and impressive, I suppose. But actually the sort of um, white trash label that mm. was applied to her and how difficult it was for her to, to, to basically shed her background in order to become that all-round American girl. When she was landing something that they couldn't even get people to film mm. landing that. They had to use special effects because apparently only two women in the world could do it. And both of them are in training for the Olympics. And they're like, I'm not going to fuck my ankle mm. for a film, mate. So they had to special effect it. Oh, wow. And yet she wasn't... Her clothes weren't fancy She wasn't enough. pretty. Yeah. Enough. She wasn't I wanted to see more idea. of that. That whole thing mm. about, you know, she's seen as this white trash character and she doesn't, in some people's eyes, deserve to be a very good figure skater or whatever. I really liked that side of it and I actually wanted to see more exploration of that. I just thought the way it was told and... I liked how they were relying on an unreliable narrator. They had everybody giving their kind of mm. side of the oh, story. I, loved that. Yeah, I, thought I thought that, that was, was really interesting. And the sort of flashback into, like, well, into from now back into how it was. Yeah, I agree. And I, I did really like how they did that. I just, something didn't really add up for me when I was watching it. Maybe it was because I selfishly wanted more of certain aspects of the story that I didn't get. And I was left feeling a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit anticlimactic for me. What the conspiracy theorist guy just... Oh, oh my he's God, amazing. he's amazing. <laughs> Hilarious, but awful. Possibly, I would say, it's probably my favourite film I've seen this year. Yeah, I'd say it's up there for me. Well, apart from... Well, there isn't a release date on that yet for DVD. There's something else that I would say possibly is the only other thing that is comes close to my favourite film of the year, which also there's not a release date on, which is The Shape of Water. Yeah. Which I'm thinking yours and I might agree with <clears> for the first on this yeah, maybe. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. But loved I it. love Pan's Labyrinth, which yeah, I know exactly. you do as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I have said to people, if you like Pan's Labyrinth, then you should definitely see The Shape of Water. I mean, it's different, but it's just I love the way Guillermo del Toro takes the supernatural and fits it into this kind of story, which is a bit magical realism. It's a bit horror. It's a bit everything and it just works so well together and it looked beautiful as well Sally Hawkins she's just amazing I love her I actually was really disappointed that she didn't win the BAFTA I have to say because you know Frances McDormand was going to win the Oscar yeah and I thought it might be nice if Sally Hawkins won her own oh she'd won something yeah she was so good in it yeah. What's the story? So the basic kind of premise of the story is Sally Hawkins works as a cleaner in this kind of, um, it's like a lab. It's, it's I can't it's really... CIA see, facility. Yeah. Um, and she works as a cleaner and they've got this weird fish man creature that they're keeping. 
Um, and it's a love story between Sally Hawkins and the fish man. Is that where we've got to go now to find love, Jen? <laughs> some sort of lab. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Go find See some secret CIA lab and you'll Sold. find the fish man to your soul. Is there an app for that? <laughs> I'm hoping so. Um, I was thinking, actually, when I was watching I, Tonya this morning, having had two glasses of wine and a sleeping tablet in my woozy haze. That's how uh, she used to skate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, like, there have been some really, really good roles for women in this like latest round of like Oscar sort of films. Been some like really mm. interesting and challenging roles for women. I mean, obviously, like yeah, all right, you know, obviously do more. Um, I'm going to assume Black Panther is coming out soon on DVD yeah, as well, so. although I don't have a date for that either. It like, must be soon, must mustn't be, it? Yeah. Hannah and Mickey, have you seen Black Panther yet? No, I, haven't, I haven't, no. It is really, really delightful. It's it really brilliant. good. Yeah. I've yeah, never heard an action movie called Delightful no, before. No, it's absolutely, it's really and I don't like that kind of shit at all. But oh, I, I don't really. Was... I, do, I do like Guardians of the Galaxy because it's funny, mm. but the rest Deadpool, of them is really amazing. smart. Yeah. It's really smart what they've done with it. I'm not... No spoilers. Um, it, I think it's really smart what they've done with it. And also, so many, like, really strong female characters mm, in that as yeah. well. The head of the army is a bird. And, like... and Is it Letitia Wright? Yeah, Shuri, the, the yeah, sister. Yeah, he's, like, his sister, and she's basically Q, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, is, Q, is it Q? Q's the one who does like the... Like John Cleese, Ben Whishaw. Basically, yeah, she's like the the gadget scientist, but it's it's fucking brilliant. It's really, really. She's delightful. the brains behind Wakanda. I yeah. absolutely adored Black Panther. Like, I thought it was, it with all the hype, I was really worried I was going to watch it yeah. and be disappointed, but I wasn't. It was brilliant. It was a really good blockbuster action movie, but it also, obviously, for reasons of representation, was fantastic to have this. Basically, entirely black cast apart from Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis, who is actually really, really good in it. He is good in it, yeah. He's really good in it. Um, I heard them referred to as the Tolkien white men. Yeah, Tolkien (laughs) white It's brilliant. And it's just, I just really, I had a smile on my face from the beginning of it to the end of it. I just thought it was so fantastic. And like you say, the female characters were absolutely brilliant. They really carried a lot of the film. And I want to see every Marvel film have Shuri in it, who's Letitia Wright's character from now on, because she was great. Is it a worry that, a bit like Jen was saying, that we've had some really strong and complicated female characters Mm. in films? Like, Alice and Janney's character is horrible. And mm. seeing that kind of woman character is unusual. But it means that you tend to have a raft of all these brilliant characters and then they disappear. Is there a fear with Black Panther that they're going to go, oh, well, we've ticked that box and we're not going to see anything like it for a long time? Or do you think it'll be a tipping point, Yosra? I'm hoping it's a tipping point. Um, and I've, the reason I say this is because look, if you look at how successful Black Panther has been, and is still doing really, really well at the cinemas, has made tonnes of money. It's showing that people actually want to see these mm. films with this kind of cast in it, and they want to see these kinds of characters. I think the studios would be stupid to not pay attention to that. Um, so I really hope this is the start of a... I mean, there's still like a really long way to go, but it's it's a really encouraging um, point, I think, and I'm I'm hoping that we will see more characters like this that kind of stray away from stereotypes or... You know, people want to explore different cultures, not just, you know, African culture, like other cultures that we don't see a lot. I'm hoping that that will be explored further. It's interesting as well, because I think the media has got a huge role to play in that, because 
after Black Panther had been out a couple of weeks, then you had the release of Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle mm. in Time. And almost immediately, they were set up in competition to each other. Yeah. As if people have only got room for one film with black people in it in yeah. their lives, which is preposterous. And so two think, black directors as well. Yeah. Mm. It, it, you know, I, I did see a bit of that, people pitting them against each other, which was nonsense. I think they're two very different films to... You take different things away from them. So, yeah. Coogler, yeah. of course, uh, directed my favourite film, my new favourite film, Creed. Creed is great, and it's also has Michael B. Jordan in. I will yeah. see anything with Michael B. Yeah, Jordan. In. He's oh, one thing that I'd like to point out because I saw it a couple of weeks ago, just on the off cuff, is a film called Princess Sid, which is on Netflix. Oh my god, I've seen that. Did you like I it? I saw it as part of the film festival. Yes, I did. Feel like I need to shout that one out because it's not an obvious one that you see when you go yeah. first onto Netflix and it's kind of plastered everywhere, like something like Annihilation, which I'd always, yeah. which I'd also point out as a film um, to watch. But um, Isle of Dogs, I'm really oh, excited really to see this see week. That. Wes Anderson, who I adore. I don't know if you guys like his films, but also Dogs and also Dogs. I yeah, like exactly. them less as they go along. To be honest, I think the early ones were the best ones. Yeah, I think they 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 kind of developed a. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel um, was just a series of cameos strung together, which frustrated me somewhat. But mm. yeah, early Wes Anderson, I really, really love. Raw Tenor Bounce is the best, obviously. It's mm. amazing. Mm, but before we one. even get into a conversation about that, <laughs> we should probably stop. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, Joshua. It's always Thank a pleasure. You. you play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time where we make history every frickin' week. Because no one really gave a shit about us until about a year ago, so it's not that hard to. That's right, we are talking all things women's sport, but don't let my sarcasm put you off, because, in fact, it's fair to say it's a truly exciting time for women's team sport in the UK right now. And, indeed, sporting history was made again last week in women's cricket, as the biggest ever crowd for a domestic women's cricket match was recorded at Lord's Cricket Club. More than 5,000 people turned up to watch Middlesex women step out onto the pitch at Lord's for the very first time in an exhibition match against Marlebone Cricket Club, whom they did in fact beat. The previous biggest ever crowd was 3,413, apparently. So that's pretty solid growth. In women's rugby, there was a nail-biting final in the inaugural Tyrrells Premier 15s between Saracens and Harlequins. A crowd of 2,000 watched Saracens pip their opponents to the post with a victory of 24-20. Now, the match report on the BBC was about four sentences long, but we can't berate them too much as one of the pioneers, really, of women's sports coverage. Well, here in the UK, anyway. The victors were 17-8 up at half-time, though tries for Harlequins from Jess Breach and Deborah McCormack gave them a foot back in the game before Hannah Bottoman sealed the deal for Saracens. All in all, it was a match that proved to the haters that women's sport has the same tension and drama as dude sport. And all the more impressive is this league, when you think about it, because the players are holding down full-time jobs and, um, yeah, you know, not, not getting paid to do it. Also, tip of the hat to Sarah Cox, not she of radio fame, um, who officiated proceedings. It was unfortunately a disappointing day in the Champions League for our women's Super League teams as both Manchester City and Chelsea were ousted from the tournament 
at the semi-final stage. In fact, it was former City player Lucy Bronze who sent the citizens packing with the only goal of the match, which was won eventually by her new team, Lyon. Wolfsburg won 2-0 to give them a 5-1 aggregate victory against Chelsea. But let's look at the positives. These are two really exciting teams doing excellent things for the women's game in the UK and giving us a lot to be excited about in the future. But let's go back to Dude Sport just for a minute, very briefly, because we are allowed to be interested in Dude Sport too. A cursory nod to Mr Arsene Wenger, who has announced he will leave Arsenal at the end of the season after 22 years managing the club. I'm actually a bit sad about this, not because I support Arsenal, I sort of do, but I actually support Charlton Athletic, but if I was going to support a good team, I would support Arsenal. I mean, it would be misplaced because... They're a bit rubbish at the moment. But anyway, I, as always, I digress. I'm a bit sad, uh, apart from all of that, because he almost had the same name as his club. And it's hard to see that happening again anytime soon. Unless, like, David Beckham or someone creates a new, like, footballing franchise and they call it Allen. Um, it seems unlikely. Someone make that happen, please. Could you? That would be good. Thanks. Or Emma. I suppose uh, there's far fewer managers of football teams called Emma than there are Allen, but whatever. Seriously, however, um, despite the recent furore around Monsieur Wenger, he's done a lot for English football and for the game in general, and I do hope that he can see out his final days at the club under less fractious circumstances. And also, I don't ever want to watch another match of the day where someone hands him a trophy because it's bit too emotional to be honest I can't really cope with it anyway that's all from me for now tweet me if you've got any other thoughts on managers with names like actual clubs or perhaps something more insightful and you know yeah sells for that I'm on at Inspiregen and I'll be back with more sports things not next week for reasons that you will hear at the end but uh, but the following week Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I watched 2008's Bolt. It's credited with instigating the Disney revival, which um, I think there's been one about every 10 years of a Disney revival, so (laughs) how important that is, I don't know. Despite doing lukewarm box office, it got a good critical reception. Not least, I read a couple that said that it was a return to classic... Disney values, and of which I have to say, stop saying that shit, people. Classic D- Disney values sucked. <laughs> Classic Disney values were misogyny and racism. I don't think we ever need to go back hey. to that. Maybe a bit of anti-Semitism thrown in. Time. When will we see a return in the world to Classic <laughs> Disney values? Uh, have either of you seen it? No, of course I haven't. <laughs> I have seen it previously. I think I own it, and it might be under my bed somewhere, and I have re-watched it. And um, I think there may be disagreement in the room because I was utterly charmed by it. Really? Did you like it? Um, No. I'll give you a quick description of the plot. This is mainly aimed at Jen. It's like a lot of stuff. The story is about a dog called Bolt who is adopted and, well, maybe he's just bought as a puppy and he ends up acting a superhero dog on a TV show. But he doesn't know that he's not a superhero dog. So in that way, it's a bit like the Truman Show. Then he gets 
he gets separated uh, in the plot. His owner, who is a, a teenage girl, is kidnapped, and he believes this has actually happened, and he decides to go off and try and find her and ends up a long way away in New York when they, she is over in California. So he has to go and find her, which makes it kind of like Finding Nemo in that it's about traversing a long distance when you're not really equipped for it. Um, he makes a couple of friends along the way, including a cat and a hamster in a ball. The hamster in the ball believes that he is a superhero still. He believes it from the telly. And that creates a lot of jokes, which is kind of like the way Buzz feels about himself in Toy Story. So it's got a lot of stuff that's that's like that. It's got a massive fire at the end, which has some health and safety implications. So I'm sure Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, who we spoke to, our fire safety expert, was would, would be, be pulling her hair out. It ends in an inferno in, in which basically they just leave a girl in there. Nobody's bothered that she's no. still in there. They've always wanted to get that burning thing into it, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's classic Disney yeah. values. Classic Disney values. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically the film. I have to say, this, this is the problem with this film. Well, one of the problems for this film for me is I don't like the cast. And that can ruin our film for you. Cold Mountain. I don't, have you ever seen Cold Mountain? Is it's that Jude Law. Yeah, it's the most Nicole incredible. Goodman. It's the most incredible film. Except I can't bear Jude Law. In fact, Jude Law makes me feel a bit scared, and I I don't understand for your what the, safety. Yeah, there, there used to be an advert uh, for advertising film four. Mm. There used to be on the telly a lot, and it was Jude Law, and he used to look directly at the camera and say something like, "Come over." And, I'm coming to get you, and Hannah. My mate used to have to get up and turn the telly off because it just bothered me. There's, yeah, uh, there's something about his face that I find quite sinister. So I don't like Jude Law. I don't like Nicole Kidman. I'm not a big fan of Renee Zellweger. So even I'm, though Cold Mountain yeah. is probably one of the best films ever made, I can't watch it. So I felt the same about this. I don't think it's one of the best films ever made, but it does have John Travolta in it, which I have a huge problem with. But did the idea... I I, I was amused at the idea that John Travolta did all of the voice for Bolt, including having to make the dog noises. <laughs> Just imagine him going... <laughs> you can do that, so I, I don't know why he wouldn't be able to do it. I don't, and I don't even know what it is about Travolta I can't bear. It's partly the helmet hair. It's partly I was watching that dog and all I could see was the helmet hair in my head. And it's partly the uh, oh, Alex only... Gibney's documentary, Going Clear, which has given me some very... Um, yeah, I can only think of that Shapiro dude. I can only think of that hairpiece now when I think of him. Oh, from, from the OG. Yeah. yeah. I think that was actually his hair, Jim. <laughs> I don't think that was for the part. I think that's that's his hair. I, I think, think it's drawn on like Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole of Steven Seagal. Do you think the whole of Steven Seagal is drawn on? Drawn on. Possibly yeah. a piece of cardboard. Yeah, I think so. He's very two-dimensional. Yeah, he's got a great com- career for what is essentially something that should be standing up he in looks, the corner of a, a comic book shop. It's like Pat so, Stanley grew up. Like, um, he looks a bit like Andrew Neil, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Who my friend refers to as Weetabix. <laughs> um, and what about Rhino, the Vietnamster? He's amazing. Uh, yeah, he is. He is. He is funny. He is morbidly obese, despite the fact he runs in a rat in a in a wheel from no, New York to it's California a ball, yeah. in a ball. Right? He's still morbidly obese, and the cat is still ridiculously skinny, even though when she gets to eat. 
Yeah, but like with the ball thing as well. I mean, I know that cartoons aren't necessarily very fact based, but those things are not indestructible. And that ball goes through so much. Like my mate was really mean and he used to put his hamster in the ball at the top of the stairs with the cat and then let the ball roll down the stairs and see who could get to the the freed hamster first, him or the cat. What the fuck? Did your mate kill people later in life? I don't know. We're not friends anymore. (laughs) I'd hope not. But there was a couple of questions I, I had about this film, and and I've been meaning to ask this for ages, and this film really kind of crystallised it for me. What is Disney's problem with animal shelters? So they, of course, at some point get picked up by whatever the equivalent of the dog warden is oh, and right, put in yeah. an animal shelter because that happens well, in, in all America. Films. It's a child catcher from um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Classic well, exactly. Disney. Every every film, right? These animal places are run by absolute cunts. Seriously, <laughs> just, as opposed to just selfless humans who really like like. Well, you see, animals. I now believe me, I I've met an awful lot of people who work in animal shelters. I worked on a local newspaper for thirteen years. I will say the almost unifying factor of all of them was that they loved animals. Yeah, some of them were a bit eccentric. Some of them were full blown mad. Some of them loved animals too much. <laughs> But they all loved animals. And yeah. for a start, this one's got an animal shelter. It's got three people gardening at night. Three people. Most of them are run by some guy on minimum wage who's just there because... Anyway. Do you reckon anyone guards Battersea Dogs Home at night? Well, I'd imagine that there are staff there in case one of the dogs gets taken ill or something. Oh, good point. Probably not got weapons. No, I would imagine no. not, no. Classic Disney vibes. <laughs> Here's another question, right? There's a line in this in which a cat tells a dog that all cats secretly want to be dogs. Oh, oh, that bit really annoyed me. What the fuck? Because it's That's a woman cat bullshit. telling yeah. a bloke as well. No, women really want to be men. It's now, it's funny you should say that because up. this is what I've decided has happened in Disney films now. What's happened is they can't say that women are shit and men are brilliant, <laughs> but they can say that cats are shit and Dogs are brilliant, provided most cats are played by women and most dogs are played by men. Classic, Classic Disney values. values. There we go. Okay. <laughs> We are seeing a return to classic yeah. Disney values cats in the world. Cats don't want to be dogs. Cats have it way better than dogs. Dogs have to actually like look like they give a shit about you. They have to put some effort in. Dogs have to work at liking you and being your pet. Cats, right, they just embarrass you by cleaning their ass when they're on the dinner table when other people come round the house pissing in the sink pissing <laughs> the sink when they have cystitis they throw up just anywhere they fancy which is quite a lot at the moment I'm convinced that my cat has got pockets and that he's putting cat litter in his pockets so he can disperse it around the house <laughs> I'm finding it in all sorts of places just up his trouser legs shaking it out wherever he goes <laughs> he's tunnelling he's tunnelling he, he really is, is. The last thing I wanted to talk about this film is is um, it's really problematic and I have people complaining to me about it is that the girl in this the girl who plays uh, the the Penny Penny she's called um, she is the heroine of it she is the owner of the dog she is played by Miley Cyrus yep. now people have strong opinions about Miley Cyrus I don't particularly have strong opinions about her as a person but I do have some quite strong opinions about the people around her who perhaps haven't advised her the way that they should. Now, what's really interesting is in this film, that character leaves that industry, right? Leaves it all behind, goes and lives on a farm with all a spoiler alert, with her mom. Does that mean she's died? She goes to live on a farm. <laughs> with her mom and the dog and she takes the hamster and uh, all the other random pets and they all go and live there and they all live very happily after, right? Mm-hmm. Because that is what Disney wants you to think is the life of child stars. 
in 2008, exactly the same year that this film was made, Annie Leibovitz took pictures of 15-year-old Miley Cyrus wearing just a sheet and looking at the camera. When she's 15? Fucking hell. Oh, I've got Annie Leibovitz confused with Anne Geddes for a moment then. Yeah. She's the one who puts babies in plant pots with Celine Dion. Now, I got, look, uh, seriously, Annie Leibovitz is great, but yeah, I don't know what great. the fuck anyone was thinking. So the idea that Disney is making a film that the sole purpose of which is being a child star doesn't fuck you up and using Miley Cyrus in it is, I find it makes me really uncomfortable. So this film is quite good, but it is losing points left right and center it's tainted for you isn't it it's by tainted. a lot of things it's tainted by classic disney values hannah yeah absolutely right well what score are you going to give it i'm going to give it two and a half. Ooh. Mm. two and a half what two and a half helmet hairs <laughs> <laughs> out of a full john travolta That's all from us this week on the Standard Issue Podzine. Thanks ever so much for joining us. As ever, we've had a lovely time. Next week, we'll be back with a slightly different podcast for you. It's going to be a special on the imminent repeal the 8th referendum, which is going to happen in Ireland towards the end of May. It's a two-parter, and the first of which will be available on Wednesday as per usual. In the meantime, keep your eyes and indeed your ears peeled for playlists and chops and all of the usual delights we have for you. If you'd like to see us with your eyes, you just missed a trick because we had a show in that London on Sunday with the very, very excellent Shazia Mirza, Connie Huck, Lucy Mangan and Rachel Paris. You'll be able to hear that at some point in the future. But if you want to book tickets to our show in May then please do. We have a show at the Leicester Square Theatre in London in May on the 28th and we will have for you Mickey and Hannah who will be hosting a very, very excellent lineup. in fact, Marion Keys, whose book you will be able to buy at the event ahead of publication. We'll have actor Vicky McClure, we will have musician Katie Tunstall, and actor-slash-comedian Gemma Whelan, who's on, you know, Game of Thrones, which is apparently amazing. So, that's excellent. And we've also just recently announced a couple of shows up in the north of England. I know. Um, So, if you're one of those people who says, you never do any shows not in London, well, we are. So, have a look at our website, because we've got some more dates to announce shortly. So, do keep your eyes peeled and keep checking back on Sarah's website, you can find us on www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. If you like us and you like what we do, it's really, really super helpful if you can rate and review us on... I don't even think it's called iTunes anymore. I think it's called Apple Music or Podcasts or something. But, you know, that one that used to be iTunes. It's really helpful if you can rate and review us on there and, you know, five stars is ideal so yeah please have a look at that also you can find us on twitter we are at standard issue uk i am indeed at inspire gen and also hannah and mickey are on at that dunleavy and at mixter noonan go and check us out we'll be talking about cats possibly or brexit or i don't know all sorts of shit to be honest we are also on facebook and we are on instagram and we like it when you pop by and say hello so please do. 
that's all from us for now. All that remains for me to say is, indeed, stay frosty, champs. Standard Issue for all women.